This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, that takes us kind of through three of the concerns. Let me let me quickly, I'm going to wrap these together because I want to be sure we get to the 12 elements of economic wisdom in our time is rapidly running away from us. There are four themes that the uh, Economic uh, Wisdom Project pursues, and those are stewardship and flourishing. We're given, we are given stewardship over the world so our work can make it flourish for God's glory. What's called value creation through economic exchange, we work together and create value for one another. Productivity and opportunity, economic systems should be grounded in human dignity and moral character and responsible action. Economic systems should practice and encourage a hopeful realism. And behind all this, I think, these four themes, what kind of pulls them together is this kind of commitment to, to serving your neighbor and loving your neighbor that, that draws all these together. So I take it these are themes or maybe even values in some ways that, that drive the movement. Yes, I do think that love of neighbor is uh, central to all of these themes and does provide a, uh, a tie that holds them all together. Um, to a large extent, um, it it grows out of um, it grows out of a couple of talks that Dallas Willard gave to us uh, two years ago, shortly before he went to be the, with the Lord. It grows out of the vision of our benefactors at the Kern Family Foundation. It grows out of a number of other sources. But I do think that essentially, um, the I don't want to overstate this, but I think the American Evangelical Church has focused a lot on faith, uh, but has not put hope and love as much at the center of Christian life in the last century. Uh, and that's a result of a lot of historical factors or the confrontation with the main line where the definition of faith is called into question. Uh, central historic doctrines of the Christian faith are being uh, attacked uh, and so forth and so on. The increasing secularization of public spaces makes it important for us to keep our identity grounded in our faith. I think all that is legitimate. But I think to some extent, the Christian virtues of hope and love are not uh, as widely intentionally put at the center of Christian life as they could be. And it may well be the job of the 21st century to grow, not to leave faith behind by any means, but to grow hope and love out of that faith uh, in a new way. And I hope that this contributes to that to some extent. Yeah, and I, 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 I I'm going to translate what you just said, because I think that when people think about faith, what really what you're talking about in some degree are the, are, is the theological reflection and the theological way of engagement of the faith the, and how we think about that and the, and the challenges that modern life has put on faith has, has ended up creating a focus on those kinds of questions. But you're saying in order to have a holistic and well-rounded uh, approach to the Christian walk and the Christian faith, the role of love and the role of hope, uh, the role of service, and the role of knowing where you're trying to take people and, and kind of turning around life in a fallen world is a very, very important part of the total package. 
Absolutely. And I think another thing that you see in those four themes is the work that we're doing trying to reintegrate theological concerns with uh, economic concerns. So you look at the starting point is stewardship and flourishing. We need to understand that what, we've, what we are to value, what we are to pursue, uh, is to be good stewards for God and to help our neighbors and our world flourish. That's the starting point. And the ending point is okay, let's roll up our sleeves and get busy because we're responsible, uh, but let's, let's not just do things for the sake of doing them. Let's not sort of let uh, uh, do good works because so that we can look in the mirror and say we did something, but let's actually be responsible for outcomes and, and, and uh, how well we are effective in, in helping our neighbors. And then the, the middle part, sort of value creation, productivity, and opportunity, uh, reflects a, 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 a sense of what does it mean when we say, all right, let's help the world flourish. Uh, we want to create value. We want economic exchange to be value creating. Uh, we, and we want people to be productive to the extent that they can. And we want to give them opportunity to do that uh, because that is necessary to respect their human dignity. Yeah, I, I think that when we think about this, if, if we – if, if we just contemplate it a little bit, that what we're talking about is life represents a management of the creation. If you ask why God, you know, brought people into being, you know, and we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we've got a management of the creation that we've been given responsibility for from the very start, and we've got a management of the relationships of other people made in the image of God that we're supposed to respect. And so uh, that's what you're seeing here. And I think once you, you – once you develop that kind of theological foundation for for how Genesis 1 and 2 feeds into the definition of life and why God has created us, then a theology of faith and work makes immediate sense. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I think, uh, and you mentioned the image of God, recovering a more uh, fully rounded understanding of what the image of God means uh, and the significance of it is another theme that ties this together. And it's related to love because, of course, that's central to how we image uh, the triune God where three persons uh, are loving each other in perfect unity. Uh, the, the love that human beings are called to have for one another is essential to the image of God. Uh, and recovering a sense that the image of God consists not only in reflecting God's attributes, although it does Im involve that, uh, but also in what you just called managing the creation order, uh, a sense of dynamism in the creation order, that God gave creation to human beings as a project uh, to be developed and, and uh, cultivated, rather than simply as a static reality, uh, which is a Greco-Roman philosophical view of creation uh, that is, I think, not reflected in the, in the, biblical, in the biblical view. Uh, and this goes all the way back to de the debates in the early church where Irenaeus was uh, championing this dynamic view of creation. Uh, but unfortunately, that, that view didn't win out for a while, and it was not until the Reformation that this dynamic view of creation comes back to the fore. I think we're still figuring out the deep implications of creation being a dynamic project uh, that was given to us for cultivation and development. Uh, rather than a static reality that was meant to simply remain motionless, motionless and unchanging. Hmm. 
Well, I, we could we could park here, but I'm going to move on, and we're, we've got a challenge because I'm going to try and take us through the 12 elements of economic wisdom in the remaining half, a little less than half hour that we have. So that means we've got about uh, two and a half or three minutes for each one of these. So so um, with that, I'm gonna, I'm throwing the challenge out ahead of time, so you kind of know what we're up against. Let's go through these one at a time. One. Uh, uh, we have a stewardship responsibility to flourish in our own lives, to help our neighbors flourish as fellow stewards, and to pass on a flourishing economy to f- future generations. I guess if you boil down number one to one word, it's the word flourish. I think it is. That is the the. It's restoring a, a teleological, a purpose oriented approach to human activity that human activity is not just arbitrarily there but it's made to it's made with direction it's made for purpose uh, another aspect of what's going on in that first element is we are naming the different levels of experience there's an individual level that every individual needs to do uh, uh, whatever to, to to seek flourishing as a steward in his or her own life uh, there's a relational level where we are we are to help our neighbors flourish as fellow stewards, and that as fellow stewards is important to the way we relate to people as we help them to flourish. We don't reduce other people to objects of our pity and help, but we maintain the humanity of our fellow human beings as we help them flourish. And then there's the social level. Uh, we want to help our whole world flourish and our societies flourish. And finally, the intergenerational level uh, that we need to restore a sense that it matters how our grandchildren are going to live. So, uh, so we're talking about a combination here of service. And if I can put it in another word here, we're asking, how can I benefit my neighbor? I mean, we're talking about flourishing. We're actually looking at something that edifies, that builds up, uh, that benefits one's neighbor. Absolutely. Okay, number two. Uh, we're we did all right on that one. Uh, econ- economics flourish when people have integrity and trust each other. That is absolutely essential. I can't over I can't overstate the importance of trust. What makes economies run is when strangers trust each other. Uh, the expectation that a person you just met will not attempt to deceive, swindle, or defraud you uh, in an exchange. If you go to parts of the world that are economically underdeveloped and just go into the market as a stranger who looks different and speaks a different language, uh, you will, I think, I've heard this experience reported so many times by so many people, there is a distrust, an expectation that strangers uh, are not to be trusted in economic exchange. And the critical turning point in economic history is when a sufficient level of trust is established and uh, respect for the dignity of, of individuals outside the social elite is established, that people can engage in large-scale uh, economic exchange with one another uh, without having to constantly look over their shoulder every moment. Uh, because when people don't trust their neighbors, they withdraw into socially homogeneous groups and do all their exchanging in those socially homogeneous groups. Uh, and we, breaking down those barriers between classes, between races, between religions, uh, has been the major factor in the success of modern economies. Okay, three. 
In general, people flourish when they take responsibility for their own economic success by doing work that serves others and makes the world better. And, and I think the key here is, uh, if I can give another term to kind of throw into this, is to kind of work against creating a, an, uh, an, a, a dependency that in the end is destructive. Yes, that's absolutely right. I think here, here is where we're beginning to define what we mean by flourishing. Uh, so what does it mean? To, well, central to flourishing is creative work uh, and, and producing more than you consume. And I think that there's an, there's an anti-materialism that's going to come out in the next element. I'm giving you a perfect segue to move to the next element. There's an anti-materialism here that people need uh, right relationship with their neighbors more than they need material resources. Hmm. Okay, four. Uh, real economic success is about how much value you create, not how much money you make. This is why that dependency is so dangerous, that to live into the image of God and to love our neighbors, we need to be creating value for other people rather than extracting value from others as our primary goal. Uh, we, that people are not actually made better off primarily by money. Now, I'm not saying money's not important. It's very important. Uh, I, you know, we don't want to be Gnostics and become contemptuous of material realities. That's not the idea. But we need to prioritize relationships over material uh, goods and services and conditions and resources. And in fact, once you prioritize relationships, that will have important consequences for the way you use money and resources. And so, so and go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, we have to define flourishing as being in right relationship with other people, which in, in the case of work means providing value for others, rather than defining flourishing as accumulating resources. Sources. Yeah, or even, or even just uh, making sure that everyone kind of lives at a subsistence level. Yeah, I think that's um, uh, that's important. That people, if there are people who lack daily food and shelter, we need to be doing something about that. And yet, um, to define that as the end goal of how we help others. Uh, uh, I think then then puts material stuff rather than relationships in the center of the picture. Yeah, and so the the transition is to move people to a place where they hopefully can begin to contribute to to the ongoing exchange, as opposed to being people who are so left so marginalized that the, that they are constantly only drawing from that system. Yes, like Bob Lupton says, everyone has something to contribute. Mm -hmm. and whatever, whatever they have to contribute, we want them to be uh, uh, contributing it because we value them as human beings. Okay, fifth, a productive economy comes from the value-creating work of a free and virtuous people. Right, and here's where we're kind of stepping from the personal level to the social level, that this lesson that we want people to be value creators applies not only at the individual level, but we want to create a social expectation of it. Uh, and when we ask, uh, how, can, how can our society have economic success? We want to uh, not look to kind of gimmicks and short-term thinking and say, well, if we just pull this lever and push this button, everybody's going to be better off. Uh, you know, T.S. Eliot has that wonderful line about how we're dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. Uh, there, is, there is no hope for economic success uh, until we rediscover virtue, until we rediscover moral goodness that is the only root and foundation of a lasting prosperity. And then it mentions free and virtuous people because human beings are made to be stewards. 
human beings are made to have moral responsibility for their own lives, which means they need a degree of control over their own lives in order to exercise the virtue and cultivate the virtue that we want them to have. Yeah, when you pull morality out of this conversation, then I think what you risk uh, launching yourself into is a kind of world in which I think we sometimes see this, where where tribalism reigns, where it's basically the use and often the abuse of power that reigns because everyone starts to to uh, apply their energies for their own self interests. Right, when there is no publicly recognized transcendent standard of good then political and economic activity simply becomes how can I get as much as possible for me or for my group, uh, depending. And, and the only way to have political and economic activity that is not simply a competition for power is to have a publicly recognized standard of good that, is, that transcends our material interests. Uh, and, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about value creation. Yeah, it transcends our material interests and also translates, uh, uh, transcends our, our tendency to be personally selfish and self-directed. Yes. Um, so, uh, well, sixth, um, I, I feel like I'm running through a list, but which is actually what I'm doing. Uh, six, um, economies generally flourish when policies and practices reward value creation. This is you're talking about the formation of a, of a of a moral environment here. Yes, uh, we're taking a step now from from having taken it to the social level. We're now saying uh, this needs to guide practice. This can't simply be um, something that we affirm. On you know uh, in public speeches and holidays and that kind of thing, but this actually needs to be put into practice. Uh, now we don't get very specific about that here, and and we don't get very specific about that in the Oikonomia Network because uh, it's not the it's not the role of pastors to kind of uh, examine many of these policies in detail. And yet it's important to make the statement that this is not just gaseous rhetoric, uh, and that you can't accomplish the kind of vision we're laying down simply by talking about it. Uh, that policies and practices have got to uh, align rewards to behavior. Uh, that there, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing cynical with saying that uh, if you practice the right behavior, we want that to be successful. And if you don't, if you practice the wrong behavior, we don't want that to be successful. Uh, it's, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that human beings are not disembodied spirits. Uh, we're not this sort of platonic minds in jars, uh, but we, you know, human beings are creatures. Human beings uh, have a, a biological and a physical and a relational reality uh, where if vice is rewarded, you will get more vice, and, mm. and that's something we've got to take seriously. Right, well, I think we see that in some of, some of what goes on today. Uh, seventh, household businesses, communities, and nations should support themselves by producing more than they consume. Yes, and you notice the list of levels of, of experience again. We mm -hmm. want this. Uh, uh, we want this from the household level uh, to the corporate level to the local local level and, and national level. Uh, that at all uh, at all levels of social experience, what we want is uh, as much as possible people and organizations contributing more than they uh, consume, uh, producing more value than they consume, so that they are net benefactors to those around them rather than net uh, consumers to those around them. Now, households is important 
because not all individuals are able to produce more than they consume. And the first line of defense there is the household. Uh, that and, and boy, do you see this in the Old Testament law. The household is so economically important. The whole economy in the Old Testament is designed to operate around the household. Uh, the household is where uh, the primary place for care of those who can't care for themselves takes place. Now, that's not the only place, and if the household fails, then there are other structures that do need to come in. Uh, but if the household is displaced from its central role in productivity, uh, sort of in, in, in creating those units that produce more than they consume, uh, it becomes unsustainable over the long term. Okay. Eighth, a productive economy lifts people out of poverty and generally helps people flourish. Right. And here is where I think we're coming into contact with uh, some, some approaches that have uh, really begun to take a negative view towards economic growth. Um, and, and I think that needs to be rethought. Uh, the idea has been that economic, because economic growth does create uh, some unique challenges culturally and for the church, uh, the economic growth is therefore the problem, and, and we, we want to go back to a sort of old-fashioned agricultural economy that doesn't grow. Uh, and I think it's really impossible to take that view and still have a, a sustainable idea of human flourishing. Uh, that Again, we're back to the dynamic creation, that creation is a dynamic order that's intended to grow. Uh, and that means economies are intended to grow. Uh, that's, that's God's intention for them. It doesn't mean growth should be made into an idol, and it doesn't mean that growth doesn't present some very serious challenges that, that are not present in a, in a, in a pre-industrial order. And yet, if we're really going to say, you know, love your neighbor but hope that your neighbor loses his job, uh, I think we've taken a wrong turn. Yeah, and, and the other thing that a static economy, of course, does is that it, it ignores the fact that the world itself is growing, that the population of the world grows. So if you have a static economy with a growing population, you have shrinking resources, fewer resources for, for people um, to have access to. Right, and I think part of the perspective that we're offering here is that human beings are an asset. Uh, we don't want to reduce them to that, but we need to overcome the idea that human beings are a liability. Uh, human beings are productive. They have something to contribute. That's part of being made in the image of God. That's part of their dignity. The human beings uh, are a net positive. We're for, you know, we're for that. We mm -hmm. like human beings. We want more of them. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that... Um, uh, I think that I, I'm just very concerned about sort of negative attitudes about growth uh, and particularly how it helps the poor. That uh, in general, the well-being, the economic well-being of the impoverished within a society gets better when that society is economically growing uh, and, and gets worse when the society as a whole gets worse. It's rare to see economy as a whole growing but the poor getting worse off. It's just not where, where we see the data going. Hmm. Ninth, uh, the most effective way to turn around poverty, economic distress, and injustice is an expanding opportunity for people to develop and deploy their God-given productive potential in communities of exchange, especially through entrepreneurship. So this is actually an extension of what we were just talking about. It very much is. And uh, say that ten times fast. Yeah, exactly right. I did that about I'll, as quickly as I could. I'll admit that that one includes a lot of verbiage that's intended to reassure people that we don't mean anything kind of radical and revolutionary here uh, that's going to sort of just, you know, tear the order to shreds and throw people into snowbanks and whatever. 
what we're saying here is ultimately the a sustainable and effective approach to poverty is formation of entrepreneurial enterprises. Uh, and, and this, if, if you put it that way, uh, it doesn't generate a lot of resistance. People generally see that. I'm very excited about uh, initiatives where local churches are helping to uh, organize for-profit businesses in impoverished communities. Yeah, that's crucial. That is, that is the long-term solution to yep. poverty. Yep. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Okay, uh, 10, programs aimed at economic problems need a fully rounded understanding of how people flourish. And once again, uh, not, this, this is sort of putting the cherries on top of the Sunday at this point, but uh, as we've been talking for some time, uh, you can define flourishing as having money or you can define flourishing as being in right relationship with other people. Uh, and programs and practices are very often, and I'm talking, I'm talking about programs in the church, programs in nonprofits and parachurches, and programs in the public square. Uh, are often designed on the assumption that people flourish by having money, that giving people money will make them flourish. Now, money's important, and I'm not saying those programs are always, you know, wrong uh, to, to exist, but flourishing is about being in right relationship with God and neighbor. Uh, and so if, if, we, if we think about these programs only as a way of moving money around, they're not going to be successful. Yeah, and what you do with money is actually pretty important. I mean, uh, it, the the... The parable of the rich fool sits out there and says, you know, this guy, you know, basically kept it all to himself and for himself, wasn't benefiting anyone other than himself. And uh, the commentary on that when it was all done is, yeah, he may be rich, but he's a fool. No, that's right. Or uh, as Dallas Willard put it in those talks I referenced earlier, he said $50 in the pocket of a person with broken family relationships and broken work relationships and other broken relationships is not going to do the same thing as $50 in the pocket of a person who has right household relationships and right working relationships and other right relationships with God and neighbor. That $50 is just going to behave differently depending on which of those two pockets it's in. I think that's very profound. Hmm. Eleven, economic thinking must account for long-term effects and unintended consequences. Hard to do, but you have to think about this. Absolutely. And uh, uh, there's, a, there's a classic book by Henry Hazlitt called Economics in One Lesson. Uh, and the one lesson is essentially that, that economic, economic policies and programs uh, need to think about long-term uh, effects and, and uh, unintended consequences. And then all the rest of the book is applying that to policy after policy after policy after policy after policy after policy, showing how we have gone wrong again and again and again and again by thinking about the short-term but not the long-term. And thinking about the intended consequences, but not asking what might be the unintended consequences. So you can meet a need, but if you meet a need poorly, it's still you still have a need on the other end of meeting the initial need, and you create more need. 
Yep. And if you want to, if you want to read another book about that, when helping hurts is the mm-hmm. book to read about that. Hmm. And then uh, the last one on the list, number twelve. In general, econ- economies flourish when goodwill is universal and global, but control is local, and personal knowledge guides decisions. Right. And this is very difficult. Um, as Christians, we know it's important that our neighbor does not just include the people we happen to know, uh, that our neighbors are, can include strangers and people who are culturally other. At the same time, modern technology and globalization has given us the capacity to reach around the world and have a tremendous impact on people who we are not in relationship with. Uh, and, you know, it's just not always helpful for us to uh, fly around the world and dump, you know, crates full of money on people from helicopters and then wave and, you know, sort of say, uh, now we've helped you and, and leave. Uh, that, that to, to be in relationship with people uh, is important to sustainability of all efforts. So uh, modern technology does allow us to reach people who... Uh, are our fellow human beings, but they're not our neighbors until we're in relationship with them in some respect. Uh, and, and in the last generation particularly, we've been very eager to mobilize the ability of technology to get us around the world uh, and to move money and resources around the world. Uh, but actually, it is, it is the development of local relationships and capacities uh, that is going to produce long-term flourishing. So we do want global goodwill. We just don't want to remove uh, the the locality of relationship from that equation. Well, uh, we we've come kind of come to the end of the list, and I want to close by reading uh, the kind of the last paragraph of this document, which which I think does a nice job of summarizing kind of the the direction that that you seek to achieve with all of it. It says the economic sphere of human life derives its nature from the Trinity, from the eternal love that God is. The free and voluntary coordination of diverse activities for mutual benefit that God intends for human economies is an image of the loving way in which the Father, Son, and Spirit freely and voluntarily work the divine will in unison. When Christianity helped our civilization see this aspect of God's image more clearly, it laid the groundwork for the modern economy. If Christians recover a theology of work and economics, they can once again offer this clarity to our civilization through fruitful work and economic wisdom. Only this can restore both whole life discipleship in the church, it's an interesting phrase, and the deepest foundation of flourishing in civilization. What a thrilling time in history God has called us to live in. Nicely said. Well, thank you. I don't disagree with anything you just read. <laughs> no, I do think that a return to the Trinity is an essential part of this. Uh, coming back to what we were talking about before, love for a neighbor, uh, and to understand the anthropology of the human being, that we are individual creatures and social creatures. And we see, I think, a, a conflict going on between uh, those who are so eager to affirm the dignity of the individual that they neglect the social nature of humanity, and those who are so eager to, to affirm the social nature of humanity, uh, that that importance of every individual and freedom and virtue of every individual is often obscured. I think there is potential common ground if we can affirm both the individual and the social nature of human beings and commun- individuals in community, and communities can constituted by individuals. 
Uh, and I think this is what Christianity has often done in human history, show cultures how they can affirm seemingly contradiction, contradictory things at the same time. Uh, and that's often the secret of the church's success. You know, another thing that strikes me here is that we're really dealing here with, with, with helping people locate their identity, where they fit in the world, where they fit in the creation, where they fit in God's design. And when you use God's character and the Trinity as the backdrop for thinking about how we relate to one another, how we contribute to one another, how we edify one another, serve one another, uh, help one another flourish, uh, we, we, we're again back to Genesis 1 and 2, that God has given us a creation to manage that is a, that is a reflection of his own management of the world. And, and in that, we, we, we locate ourselves and, we, and we, we gain insight into the vocation that God has given each one of us. Yes, and not only Genesis 1 and 2, but Revelation 21 and 22 as well, where the nations of the world bring their glory into the New Jerusalem and come in and out of it at all times. The gates are never shut. Uh, it's, it's both, it's both backward-looking and forward-looking. That's great. Well, Greg, I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this document. Uh, in, uh, we've had several sessions now. This completes the project in, in some ways uh, of having this kind of digitized commentary on a theology that, that works, and, and, uh, and we hope that this has been beneficial to our listeners. We hope it's been beneficial to, to have this uh, for the Kern Foundation. We thank you for taking the time. Uh, to spend uh, spend time with us to walk us through this document. Thank you. I've appreciated it. And we thank you for being a part of The Table, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.